0: The day Charles Mitchell was caught trying to escape Olympia was a Monday. He slipped out of the house well before the 6 a.m. sunrise. The boat wouldn't leave till 7, but Charles wasn't a paying passenger. He'd need to get aboard unnoticed. It was September 24, 1860. Charles, some called him Charlie, was a boy, 13, a black boy. He was also a slave, considered the property of his owner, James Tilton. The Tilton House was at 10th in what's now Columbia Street, overlooking an estuary that's now Capitol Lake. After slipping into the darkness, Charles made his way down the hill. Nervous, no doubt, the familiar smell of low tide in the air as he headed down Main Street. You'll know it today as Capitol Boulevard. At the foot of Main Street, about where modern-day Thurston Avenue is, was the start of the wharf. It pointed north, and in those days ended just shy of where the farmer's market is today. Now the smell of rough timber and the ship's burning coal competed with the smell of the sea. A lit oil lamp or two may have been visible on the 140-foot steamship tied at the wharf. The crew was getting ready for the day's voyage. At least one member of that crew was expecting Charles. This was the first and only known attempt to extricate a slave from Washington Territory on Puget Sound's own version of the Underground Railroad. The seeds of this plan were already in the ground at least two and a half years earlier, in San Francisco. San Francisco was home to a sizable black population in the 1850s. In Oregon and Washington Territory, on the other hand, young Charles was one of just a handful of black Americans.
1: If we're talking about the 1850s, there's not not just not a lot of Black
0: people in this region, there aren't a lot of people. Quintard Taylor is the Scott and Dorothy Bullitt Professor Emeritus of American History at the University of Washington.
1: I have taught African American history since, what, 1971? He says there were
0: roughly 4,000 Black Americans in California in the late 1850s.
1: The only other place uh, in all of the West that had more Black people was Texas. And of course, the vast majority of those Blacks were, were enslaved at that time.
0: Most of us have learned some about the centuries-long institution of slavery and the deep persecution of Black Americans in the Southern and Eastern United States. But if you're like I was for a long time, there's this vague notion that the West Coast in these early days of statehood and territories was different, at least for non-Native Americans. You know, frontier life was rough, but more egalitarian, more merit-based.
1: Well, the reality is that uh, the Black presence was almost always contested. Um, uh, I wish we had visuals, I could show you a map of the West. And one of the things that you would see immediately is that California and Oregon and Washington Territory were listed as free territory. In other words, there was no possibility of slavery, theoretically. In a practical sense, there were numerous slaves who were enslaved people who were brought to California, and they remained in slavery through the decade, through most of the decade of the 1850s.
0: He said San Francisco was unusual, though because there was a critical mass of Black Americans.
1: And, and this is, I think, the key point, there were African Americans who had made money from mining, and so they and white abolitionist friends were able to challenge some of these restrictions, or they they mounted an effort, and a sizable, considerable effort, to get those Blacks who were enslaved in California out of slavery.
0: But no, California and the rest of the West was not an oasis for Black Americans, to say nothing of the Native people. In fact, the very creation of the state of California in 1850 was the result of a federal compromise that actually made things much worse for people like young Charles Mitchell. Black Americans, slave and free.
1: The situation actually got progressively worse uh, with the attempt to try to ban blacks from California and the Dred Scott decision, which of course made it theoretically possible for somebody to take his his or her slave anywhere in the country.
0: Fed up with this relentless persecution, Businessman Mifflin Gibbs helped organize a group of hundreds of black San Franciscans. They'd find a new home. Panama and Mexico were on the table. But in 1858, about 400 black Americans sailed north. More would follow. An invitation from the governor of British Columbia settled in.
1: As a matter of fact, the governor sort of tweaked the Americans by saying, Dred Scott has has taken citizenship away. And he said, we will extend citizenship immediately to them in Canada. (laughs) And so, so this, this gets to be part of the Charles Mitchell story. And in fact, without that presence, without that black presence in British Columbia, the story might have
0: come out differently. Charles Mitchell was born on a plantation on Maryland's eastern shore.
2: His mother was an enslaved woman. Uh, His father um, seems to have been white, probably an oyster man.
0: This is Judy Bentley. She co-wrote the book Free Boy with fellow historian Dr. Lorraine McConaughey. It's the story of Charles Mitchell and James Tilton. The book is aimed at young adults. Charles' mother's name isn't known. She was the maid of Rebecca Reynolds Gibson, a mistress on the plantation. Charles's mother's ancestors had been violently enslaved by the Gibsons generation after generation. In 1850, cholera swept the land, killing Charles's mother.
2: Uh, Mitchell was three years old when she died. The plantation she was on had been thriving for uh, 150 years, but was in the great decline. Uh, and they were... Um, Rebecca uh, could not figure out what to do with this boy. Uh, His mother had been her maid. um, And there was um, some fondness.
0: The way the Gibson family story goes, Rebecca asked her dying, enslaved maid what she could do for her. Take care of Charlie was the answer. James Tilton was a land surveyor from a prominent family. He was 34 in 1852, when Franklin Pierce was elected president. Tilton had campaigned for Pierce in Indiana, where he lived. The two had met during the Mexican-American War. When it came time to pick a surveyor general for the brand-new Washington Territory, Franklin Pierce picked James Tilton. Before they set sail for Olympia, there was no transcontinental railroad yet. James Tilton and his family visited a rundown plantation on the eastern shore of Maryland. Rebecca Reynolds Gibson... The white mistress and slave owner was James Tilton's cousin.
2: She allegedly gave um, Mitchell to Tilton either as a wedding present or because she wanted to send him to what was thought to be a free territory out here in in Washington. Tilton promised to raise him, to educate him, train him as a ship steward, and free him when he turned 18. So he came out with a family in 1855.
0: Olympia was the largest town in Washington Territory in 1855. But that wasn't saying a lot.
2: It was a very rough place. A lot of stumps still uh, in the streets. Um, It was platted uh, uh, just around what is now the the downtown and and the bay there. Um, There were a few public buildings. Um, The legislature was meeting on the second floor of a a store. There was a school um, eventually. Um, streets were muddy. You know, a lot of the transportation is by water.
0: Eight-year-old Charles Mitchell arrived in Olympia by water that spring. He and Tilton's family came by way of steamer from San Francisco. How long were they in San Francisco? Did he cross paths with any of the black community that just three years later would also leave San Francisco? The people that would help decide his fate? Charles and the family moved into the house on 10th, as James Tilton got to work. Tilton had power in Washington territory. Soon he was hosting dinners with Olympia's elites, like Governor Isaac Stevens, also appointed by the president. These were politically-minded people, and the conversations at these parties would no doubt turn to the topics that consumed the nation's politics. Slavery and expansion. Young Charles Mitchell would have surely heard some of these conversations happening in the very house he lived, and wondered what they meant for him. Slavery was technically illegal in Washington Territory, and yet Charles Mitchell was legally James Tilton's slave. Professor Taylor reminds us that these issues were very much in flux in the 1850s.
1: Again, to go back to the slave and free dichotomy, slave states and free states, you see the maps all the time. They tell us very little. Uh, They don't tell us how how difficult, how complex the situation was, was for the, the African-Americans who were actually living in these states or territories at the time.
0: Mitchell was one of just a few black people in town, but...
1: Charles Mitchell is, as far as we can determine, the only black slave uh, that was ever in Washington territory.
0: What did that feel like? How was he treated as he made his way around town, running errands for the Tiltons? We don't know exactly.
2: That's part of the challenge in telling the story. Um, we have Tilton's accounts, although Tilton's uh, Tilton's writing is more in the political vein and what he's doing as a public person, and uh, not domestic. So we, we have nothing in in Mitchell's uh, words. Um, so we we have to we speculate as to what he might have done.
0: We may not know his words, but his actions in eighteen sixty would speak loudly. Mitchell attended some school over the years. He helped build a stockade, a long wooden defensive wall, for the city during the Treaty War in 1856. In 1857, Charles was 10 then, the Dred Scott decision was announced. This decision, among other things, denied citizenship for black Americans.
1: The phrase that everybody quotes is, you know, uh, this is from Chief Justice Taney, and I'll paraphrase it, black people have no rights that a white man is bound to respect. Uh, but what, what is more insidious is that theoretically, the Dred Scott decision says that a person, a, a white person can take his or her slave to any corner of the U.S. if he wants. That's what angered abolitionists in the North. <laughs> Essentially, there was no longer a Mason-Dixon line that divided slave and free states.
0: Now, in theory, slavery could exist everywhere. If there had been any question, about Charles Mitchell's status in the supposed free territory of Washington. This settled it. 1858 is when those 400 black Americans left San Francisco for a new life in Victoria, a British colony. And it may have been 1859 when Charles Mitchell began seeing a couple new black faces in Olympia. This is the year that the 140-foot steamship Eliza Anderson began its regular mail route between Olympia and Victoria. James Allen was a black man from Victoria. He was the cook on the Eliza Anderson. William Davis, also black, was a barber in Victoria. They had heard about Charles Mitchell, his status as a slave, and they were going to risk everything to try to get him out. Professor Taylor says this kind of attitude flourished in San Francisco, where the two men had come from.
1: San Francisco was the only place in America in the 1850s where a free black could live literally side by side with an enslaved person And so essentially for those free blacks the idea of freeing slaves freeing enslaved people wasn't an abstract idea you know, as it was in the east where there there's the free North and the the enslaved in the south. in California it was as as close as your neighbor you know the enslaved person may have been. In the household next to you, and so you had, how will I say, greater motivation to try to make sure that those those folks were free. Charles began seeing these men around town
2: as he ran errands on the streets. Um, there was would be an opportunity for him to talk to the uh, to James Allen and to Davis, and we think that you know they talked to him a couple of times and said, if you're going to if you're going to go, you need to decide to do that.
0: It was late summer, eighteen sixty as 13-year-old Charles Mitchell made his decision to leave. The presidential election was in its final months. The nation was near a breaking point on the subject of slavery. The first shots of the Civil War would be fired within six months. But that quiet September morning, Charles glided down the rough wharf, and with the help of the cook, James Allen, he stowed away. The sidewheel steamer left Olympia at 7 a.m., pushing against the incoming tide. William Davis, the barber, was on board. About 9 a.m., they reached their first stop, Fort Stillicum. Charles had been this far before. He'd attended some classes at the school there. By 9.30, they were back on their way. Everything was going according to plan.
2: Until the boat uh, got to Seattle, where it was boarded by authorities in Seattle probably looking for deserters.
0: U.S. Army deserters from Fort Stillicum. The authorities found Charles and turned him over to the captain of the ship. The captain knew who Charles was. He considered him Tilton's property.
2: But they weren't going to turn around um, and go back. Uh, they, they decided they would keep him um, in custody uh, in, on the ship until he got to uh, Victoria, and where they were not going to let him off, uh, and they would return him to Tilton.
0: But Charles hadn't told the captain the whole truth. He admitted he had run away but made it sound like it was just a childish adventure. Under supervision, he was made to work to earn his fare. It was a two-day trip to Victoria, and at one of the ports along the way, Woodby Island or Port Townsend maybe, Charles spent the night under lock and key. Also on board the ship, coincidentally, was the acting governor of Washington Territory, Henry McGill. His seven-year-old son was with him. Sometime during the next day's voyage, Charles made a mistake. He told the little boy the whole truth, that he was escaping to freedom, and that he had help. The seven-year-old did what seven-year-olds do. He told his father. Four miles from Victoria, Charles was questioned again. Before the Eliza Anderson reached the port, he was locked up. Locked away, Charles couldn't see the harbor. But he could feel the ship's engines slowing as they entered. The approach could be tricky, but once inside, Victoria's inner harbor is an incredible refuge from the sometimes violent Strait of Juan de Fuca that separated the British territory from the U.S. Charles still had a little reason to hope. He was locked up, but he was entering a city with hundreds of free black citizens, ex-Californians, and they knew he was coming. (laughs) Victoria's harbor is still a refuge from the Strait of Juan de Fuca, but it's hard to imagine anyone from the 1860s recognizing it today. The rugged beaches are now clad in a concrete promenade. Hotels, restaurants, marinas, and museums dominate the waterfront. Victoria is British Columbia's provincial capital. The House of Parliament is one of the older buildings around the harbor. But even it was built some 35 years after Charles Mitchell arrived here. With just a few exceptions, Most of the earliest buildings were replaced long ago. I visited Victoria on a Sunday in February. The B.C. Black History Awareness Society is especially active during Black History Month. At a church in the James Bay neighborhood, they'd set up displays on different aspects of local history. There was information on the many black families they called nearby Salt Spring Island home. There was an expert on the Underground Railroad answering questions and a direct descendant of a prominent black pioneer family, shared photos and keepsakes. Mifflin Gibbs' name came up. Remember, he was the man who helped organize the emigration of hundreds of black San Franciscans. He became Victoria's first black city councilor. 152 years later, Jarmarca Dubo became the second.
3: Because he, he got elected November nineteenth, 1866, and I got elected October 20, 20- 2018. Dubo admires Mifflin Gibbs. Very interesting and very highly educated and a smart character. And, and sometimes I wonder if I could feel his shoes.
0: <laughs> of course, Dubo has his own experience as a black Canadian.
3: My story coming from East Africa would be different than someone who's coming from San Francisco or someone who's coming from... Cuba, or Brazil, or from Ghana, or from the Caribbean.
0: But he helped fill out the picture of Victoria's black community around the time that Charles Mitchell was locked up on the Eliza Anderson.
3: At that time, it was the gold rush, you know, yeah.
0: The Californians had arrived in Victoria at the time of the Fraser River gold rush, so much of the city's population was seeking their fortune on the mainland. Victoria was an important stop, though, for those on their way to the river, and these San Franciscans knew all about the gold rush economy.
3: They owned business. Uh, They were into the real estate. They were owning a lot of homes.
0: Mifflin Gibbs and his partner began outfitting miners. They were the first competition to the massive Hudson's Bay Company. Dubo explains to me later that for a time, these immigrants from America made up a majority of Victoria's police force. They formed a militia and vowed to fight for the British. Should Territorial conflicts escalate with the u s
3: they, they got involved in politics, they organized themselves they had a blog voting a block on and, and that 's why Gibbs got elected they faced racism and discrimination, but they were
0: part of local congregations and civic groups in Victoria. The law mostly treated them as equals, even if their neighbors didn 't always
3: they had influence in, in in, in, in the politics, in the business, and in the, in the community. And they were uh, well-respected, and they were highly educated. These were the people that were waiting for young Charles Mitchell. This was
0: the community that had his back. City Councilor Dubo and I went for a walk that ended on Wharf Street. I found the spot where the 140-foot Eliza Anderson pulled up on September 25th 1860 Charles Mitchell locked inside The only evidence that remains are several large mooring rings mounted in the moss-covered rock As the ship pulled up that afternoon word of its arrival spread
2: and so when the boat got there and he did not come off uh, a crowd waiting said you know where where is he they they knew he was uh, to be uh, he was to be there so um Everybody was uh, a little uh, nervous, uh, wondering where he was, wondering what would happen.
0: The question didn't hang in the air long. James Allen, the ship's cook, fired for his role in all this, rushed off the boat. William Davis, the Victorian barber, and passenger since Olympia, followed. They told the crowd that Mitchell was locked on board, before rushing off to get a lawyer involved. The crowd swelled to nearly 100 people. The ship's first mate, threatening them as they grew more vocal, in demanding Charles Mitchell's release. At the law offices of Henry Creese, Allen and Williams made sworn affidavits. Freeboy authors McConaughey and Bentley came across them in their research. Here's Judy reading one.
2: I, William Davis of Victoria, a barber, may go for myself and say that I was a passenger on board the Eliza Anderson from Olympia to Victoria on Monday the 24th day of September. That when the said steamer had left Olympia, a boy of the name of Charles was found stowed away on board. He told me that he was a slave and belonged to Judge Tilton. Um, Tilton was often called Judge um, and was then trying to make his escape. That the captain of the Eliza Anderson endeavored to have him taken off by ships that he passed but could not succeed. And accordingly, he brought him into the port of Victoria. That the said boy, Charles, now locked up on board the Eliza Anderson and the captain and officers will not let him out as they are afraid of his obtaining his freedom by setting foot on British soil, that the said Charles is wrongfully detained in custody as a fugitive slave. So this is Davis talking. Allen, James Allen, the cook on board, made about uh, a similar affidavit, and this is what brought Charles
0: before a judge. The lawyer presented these affidavits to the judge, who issued a writ of habeas corpus, basically an order to bring the detained before the court to decide if their imprisonment is legal. The captain of the ship denied the order, but the sheriff threatened force. Scores of supporters on the wharf were ready to back him up. Eventually, the captain gave in. He surrendered Charles Mitchell to the sheriff. The next morning, after a night in jail, the boy appeared before the court. Supporters filled the room. Mitchell's lawyer argued that the captain had no right to hold Mitchell against his will. And regardless, he was on British soil now, where slavery was illegal. The captain's side cited the Dred Scott decision and the fugitive slave laws. They called Mitchell the property of James Tilton, a runaway who should be returned to his master. The judge's ruling was quick. He said, no man could be held a slave on British soil. Charles Mitchell was a free boy. The courtroom erupted, mostly cheers. The Victoria Colonist newspaper called it a righteous decision. It's not clear when James Tilton learned all this. There was no telegraph in Washington Territory in 1860. But when he found out, he said that he hopes the boy never returns, as, quote, "...his services have lately not been equivalent with his expenses." he was furious with the british
2: you know the british being so uh, arrogant as to uh, as to uh, take his property uh, away um and he writes a letter to the secretary of state um uh, uh there's a writes a letter to the newspaper there's quite a bit of protest over it but then it dies down events were moving very quickly um, this is september 1860 abraham lincoln is elected uh, president of that fall And suddenly, um, the country is moving towards war.
0: Charles Mitchell began attending the Collegiate School for Boys, a school for the sons of Victoria's elite. It seems he was part of a community that really cared for him. But he would have found that racism and discrimination were alive and well in this new home. During the Civil War, Confederate flags could be seen around Victoria. Secessionists would pour in after the Union won the war many of the black pioneers that had found some refuge in Victoria.
3: Unfortunately, a lot of them went back to the States.
1: Many of the blacks who ended up in Canada, uh, including some of the black leadership after the war, came back to the U.S. because they assumed that now, especially with Reconstruction looming, they assumed that they would have rights, Their, their, their political rights would be respected.
0: In the epilogue of Dr. Lorraine McConaughey and Judy Bentley's book, Free Boy, They wonder if Charles Mitchell returned to the States, like so many others. Or did he stay in Canada? Charles Mitchell is a common name. They found possible evidence for both scenarios. But they concluded that he was probably the Charles Mitchell whose canoe washed up near Victoria in 1876, presumed dead. He'd have been 29, survived by a wife and several children. But new information came to light.
2: About a year after the book came out, uh, we were contacted by uh, Thomas Blake, who's a retired uh, lawyer and amateur genealogist, who was intrigued with what happened to Charles Mitchell. After extensive research, he, th- he thinks he knows what, uh, he's identified what happened to him.
0: Charles Mitchell actually returned to the States before the Civil War ended. Still a teenager.
2: Uh, enlisted in a California infantry company. For about three months, he was stationed at Fort Stevens on the mouth of the Columbia River, which was named after Isaac Stevens, the territorial governor of Washington who had just uh, died and had been killed in the Civil War. And, And that was very important because he has then a military record. And so one of the biggest sources of information about Charles Mitchell comes from his military pension records. It seems that he, in fact, became a mariner, um, a cook, a steward uh, on ships. Uh, He lived in San Francisco, was based in San Francisco.
0: Charles Mitchell had a son with his first wife before her death in the 1880s. He eventually married again, a woman from Liverpool, England.
2: And we have their marriage certificate. Charles Gibson Mitchell, Sarah Matilda Frederick. Um, He was 40, she was 25, Um, 1889, they were married in the Parish Church of Liverpool in the county of Lancaster. Um, They came back to San Francisco. Um, He continued, uh, and they appeared then in various censuses.
0: They had seven children and spent the rest of their lives in California.
2: So he lived, in a way, a very ordinary life, um, which is what he was entitled to. (laughs)
0: Thanks to Professor Quintard Taylor. In addition to his university work, he's the founder of BlackPast.org, an encyclopedic resource for researching black history. Thanks to Freeboy authors Dr. Lorraine McConaughey and Judy Bentley. I'll have links to their other work in the show notes. Thanks to Victoria City Councilor Sharmarca Dubo for taking time out of his busy schedule to meet with me. His own story is incredible. I'll have more information about him on the website, olympia.com. Music today by Blue Dot Sessions. Ending theme music by Olympia's own Skrill Meadow. Thanks for sharing this show on social media. Thanks for the ratings and reviews. It really does help. If you're looking for more ways to support the show and you're able to, consider supporting it financially. If you can give a little or a lot, click the support button at welcometoolympia.com. Thanks so much to those who have and continue to give. My goal is to make this podcast financially sustainable for me to produce. It's getting there. Those monthly contributions really help. Last year, the city of Olympia declared September 24th Charles Mitchell Day. This year is the 160th anniversary of his escape. Thanks for listening. I'm Rob Smith.
1: Well, you say there's no